Rarecast listeners, virtual registration for the 2021 Rare Patient Advocacy Summit is now open. Gain insights about the latest in rare disease innovations, best practices for advocating on an individual and organizational level, and actionable strategies you can implement immediately to accelerate change. Register now and learn more at globalgenes.org forward slash event forward slash patient hyphen summit. That's globalgenes.org forward slash event forward slash patient hyphen summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Many rare diseases cause unique changes to facial features that can provide insights for doctors searching for a diagnosis. Researchers at Children's National Hospital have developed software that uses machine learning technology and images captured with a cell phone to quickly recognize disease patterns not immediately obvious to the human eye to help physicians accelerate the diagnosis of genetic syndromes by recommending further investigation or referral to a specialist in a matter of seconds. We spoke to Marius George Lingareru, who led the Children's National Team that developed the digital biometric analysis software, about the diagnostic tool, how it works, and a deal with a newly formed company to commercialize the technology. Marius, thanks for joining us. Well, welcome. Thank you for the invitation. We're going to talk about the diagnostic odyssey that rare disease patients face. Technology developed at Children's National Hospital that uses artificial intelligence and biometric analysis to diagnose patients with rare genetic diseases and a licensing deal for a newly created company to commercialize this technology. Let's start with the problem, though. How much of a challenge is it today for patients with rare diseases to get fast and accurate diagnosis? Well, that's a very good question. And I think it's also a question. It's a question that has a lot of answers because it really varies where that patient is located. And uh, that comes with different opportunities and different uh, healthcare systems. So for patients who have a direct connection to an elite medical system, that may happen faster and more accurately. For patients who are in areas with under-resourced um, um, systems, that's, that may be a different type of uh, uh, conundrum. So I think that very much depends on uh, the location of the uh, patient and the resources that are available for a child, for a child's family, to access uh, specialized healthcare services. You led a team of researchers at Children's National to develop a means of using biometric data to diagnose patients. How does it work? Um, We started working with our geneticists and um, in a conversation that uh, a scientist like myself, I'm a computer scientist, 
um, and uh, other of my colleagues who are you know, bioengineers um, were trying to, to understand what is the process of doing diagnosis and identification of um, uh, children with genetic conditions. So what I like to say is that what we do in our line of work in science is distill the brain of um, geneticists or the brain of clinicians who work with these children. In, in, in other words, we're trying to um, understand what is the logic behind diagnosis, what is the process of managing uh, patients with rare diseases, and then to design computer code, which we design ourselves or with the help of the computer as uh, machine learning uh, allows, thus to design code that reproduces in a way the mentality, the intuition, the um, talent and art uh, of a clinician and then apply it uh, in uh, everyday work. You're not alone in seeking to harness facial recognition and biometric, biometric measures using AI. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking here of FDNA and face-to-gene. Is there something fundamentally different about your approach that distinguishes it? Well, I, I think there probably are a lot of commonalities also between the work that we're doing, uh, to, if I uh, may start from the other angle, because to my knowledge, and this is based just on you know, general knowledge about uh, what face2gene and FDNA are doing, uh, we use uh, artificial intelligence to uh, look at uh, faces. Um, what I think may, may, may be different, and again, this is just based on my general knowledge uh, of, of this, is that our technology is looking at identifying this morphology, identifying kids that we don't know if they are at risk or not to have a genetic condition. So where the technology we developed at Children's National Hospital and the Sheikh Zayed Institute for Pediatric Surgical Innovation is really focused at that first line of care when any child uh, you know, may be seen by uh, a, a general physician uh, who is not trained in, uh, in genetics and who is not a specialist, and then identified at that point if needs to be referred for uh, further care. Therefore, this is the first plug-in into uh, putting uh, a child on the right path for care and the workup that comes with that. What is the, the system actually doing it once it has an image of a face? Well, so our system, and right now, just for clarity, and speaking about the technology we, we developed the Children's National, right? Because as you mentioned earlier, yes. this has been licensed also. So that may be a, a path for, a, there will be a path for a product there. Uh, but what, what we did, basically the technology puts up a flag. If this morphology is present on, uh, on the child's face, and the, the system is trained with this morphology that comes from uh, you know, genetic conditions, therefore genetically based this morphology. Is the system able to learn things and recognize commonalities between patients with the same condition that we might not even be aware of? Is it using to, to make that determination or have you told it what to look for? Well, that, that, that is, um, exactly how we started the, this work with two options in mind. One of them is when you look at patients with rare diseases, and we know that there are very few, and access to data is very limited. 
some of the work that we did in the past, and we had a number of studies that we did together with our colleagues from the National Institutes of Health, we're looking at commonalities between faces of children that have a condition and those who don't, uh, uh, taking into consideration the diversity in the population. And by that, I mean you know, age, sex, uh, race, and uh, ethnicity. And at that point, we were doing some studies in which we wanted to identify what are some patterns that are quantifiable and are precise in determining uh, the presence or the absence of um, um, a genetic condition. And that is something that I think it's extremely useful for clinicians in different areas of the world who do not have access to technology such as ours, who may find genetic tests to be um, overwhelmingly expensive, who see children in different systems of healthcare, as I was mentioning earlier. Therefore, providing educational resources that can help them identify conditions based on these metrics. On the other hand, as our work grew and access to data also um, became more widely available, we started to allow the computer to learn more and more about patterns that may not have been obvious to our eye or to our intuition when we were uh, computing these biometrics, therefore allowing the computer to have more and more independence in the determination of what uh, constitutes a pattern on the face that may be associated with a genetic condition. Once the system makes a determination what are the next steps? Would you do a confirmatory genetic test? So that again is a very complex question that may have multiple types of answers because that depends again on where the test would be performed. And often I'm confronted with a question um, about what can we do with a child in Washington DC, right? Where our hospital is based. And as you were saying, you know, it may be a very uh, straightforward path. There is a referral to a, to a um, clinical geneticist. There may be um, a genetic test performed if uh, the initial consultation determines that uh, to be necessary. And then there is an entire system of care that uh, um, evolves around the child because there would be uh, potential tests to uh, look at cardiac function, pulmonary function, endocrine function, depending on what the, the, the needs and the path uh, of care for the condition of the child might be. But if a child is uh, surrounded by a healthcare system that does not have access to all these uh, resources, then what do you do there? And this is not what our technology does. So just wanna be, be clear here that uh, uh, I'm speaking in a way anecdotally. <laughs> Um, and, and not uh, about what we had developed at Children's National, but I'm talking about the need to put the child on the most adequate uh, pattern of, um, of care that is available to the child at that moment in time and at the geographical location. That could be telehealth services, that could be um, cardiac ultrasound, for instance, right? As a, as a um, uh, immediate uh, test done at the point of care that would be very importantly education of parents and families who need to understand how to best take care of their child. So all of this has to be done not independently. A technology such as this has to be integrated into the 
community and health resources that are available to the child. How might this speed up the process of getting a correct diagnosis? You are correct. <laughs> if uh, a technology such as uh, ours would be used for screening and potentially newborn screening, because the earlier the diagnosis is performed in conditions that have a genetic origin, the most beneficial for the child, because preventive care is, is key in this. And your audience, uh, Danny, probably knows very well um, how, how, how this works. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of a well-known uh, example and that of Down syndrome, where um, in the 1960s, children who were born with Down syndrome in the United States were expected to have um, a duration of life of up to 10 years on, on, on average. And that was because the path to diagnosis was slower and therefore the action of preventive care was also delayed, which was putting a child's life um, in danger. Um, these days, uh, children born with Down syndrome are expected to uh, be uh, adults with a fully functional life uh, into their 50s and even uh, uh, with a longer life expectancy. And this is again, because preventive care is uh, uh, performed and because the system for identifying uh, children with Down syndrome is uh, much more evolved through prenatal screening to newborn screening to um, uh, different tests that uh, are performed clinically. How many diseases can the system recognize today? And how large a number of diseases do you think it might ultimately be able to detect as it's exposed to more images and, and more conditions? Um, that's a great question. And I will start uh, uh, with the, the latter part of it. Um, that's something that really excites me about artificial intelligence and methods on machine learning and deep learning, such as we use in our technology. The, sis the systems become smarter with more information that they learn. So at least theoretically, the more it learns, the better will identify uh, uh, conditions. So there, there should not be a cap there. It can be more and more and more. The, expectation that our technology has is that there is some facial dysmorphology. So again, we identify this morphology, we do not pinpoint which condition that is. And I will give you a, um, an example that um, we, we showed in our very recent publication in the Lancet Digital Health, in which we had data from children from 28 countries that had 128 conditions. So this is just showing, in a way, if you want the tip of the iceberg, we looked at 128 conditions and uh, we were identifying them with an accuracy that is far superior to what um, we, we know that um, uh, clinicians who are not trained in genetics uh, um, uh, can uh, achieve uh, by just looking at uh, their pediatric populations that they see in their offices. What role does age play in the ability to diagnose a patient? Is this something you can do as a newborn screen or does the, does the patient need to get to a certain age depending on the condition for the dysmorphia to be recognizable? 
Well, the, the younger the patient is and uh, put on the right path of care, the best for everyone, right? For, for the child, for the child's family, for the healthcare system that will have to, to take care of, of, of the patient and uh, uh, will incur more and more costs the later the condition is, is, is discovered. So the, the aim of this and the holy grail of this type of technology is to do it as early as possible, which if I would have a choice, I would do it on the moment of birth. But the moment of birth may be uh, a little too early because um, uh, faces of uh, babies may be puffy, there may be edema on the face right after birth and depending on what type of birth um, that was. So a couple of days later, all these effects may be gone and the, the facial map and the biometrics may become a, a, a lot clearer. But there is, I think your question is also whether we can identify dysmorphia so, so early or do we have to, to wait until the condition becomes um, um, apparent on, on the face? What we did in our studies, we looked at different age groups and we, we grouped them into you know, infants, basically younger than two years, then two to five years, basically preschoolers, then school age, uh, adolescents and so on. And we did not find that there was a significant difference in the way our technology performs on these different age groups. That, to be said also, we did not perform a study on newborns. Uh, is it known how accurate the system is today? Is, is it anything been done to validate it? The evaluation of the system that we did in, in the study that I was mentioning that we just published was showing an accuracy of 88% on average. And that was over all ages, all um, ethnicities and races, uh, and for both sexes. And has the system shown an ability to improve as it goes? Um, that is something that is fundamental to artificial intelligence, right? It becomes better with, with more data, when of course there is something to learn, which I think it's absolutely the case in, in, in this morphology. But that is something that uh, uh, we will see again in the future when we have even more data. And ultimately, is this something, if it's commercialized, that would be regulated by FDA? And if so, is, do you know what the regulatory path would be? Um, I will not speculate on the regulatory path for that, but uh, I think it is uh, fair to expect that uh, the FDA will have to regulate this type of uh, product. It would seem that this is a, a relatively inexpensive diagnostic tool compared to something like whole genome sequencing. What's the implications for that from a, a global perspective? I think it's accessibility and portability and maybe accessibility plus portability equals equity. And um, I'm, I'm thinking again about where the markets are going in, in, in the world. The healthcare market remains, remains expensive and elitist in many parts of the world, but smartphone technology is readily available everywhere. And it's still one of the fast, fastest growing markets uh, globally. So technology that can be used with smart devices at the point of care 
would have a great potential into providing access, basically providing a specialist in your pocket to, uh, to patients who otherwise uh, would not have uh, access to services that can improve their quality of life. In July, Children's National Hospital announced that it had entered into a licensing agreement with MGNRX. What is MGNRX? Uh, MGNRX is a startup company uh, that uh, uh, approached our hospital with an interest to uh, uh, produce uh, technology that has a positive social impact. Well, what will they do now? What work needs to be done to turn this into a commercial product? And any guess how soon it might become available? Um, I do not have that information, but uh, I think for any startup, it is essential to uh, uh, create a product fast because startups depend on the success on, and of, of their products and the speed to which they bring um, uh, products to market. Marius George Lingararu, who led the Children's National Team that developed the digital biometric analysis technology and a principal investigator in the Precision Medical Imaging Laboratory at the Sheikh Zayed Institute for Pediatric Surgical Innovation. Marius, thanks for your time today. Thank you very much, Danny. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.